From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Whether you own your home or rent, we'll break down what this week's special session means for you tax-wise. Then, a Denver rabbi addresses her congregation after marching on Washington in support of Israel. We are fighting perhaps more than one war. And they're a little tangled, but we have the war in Israel with Hamas, and we have the fight that we are picking up here in Denver, in Colorado, in the U.S., in the rest of the world against anti-Semitism. And later, restoring a painting is delicate, time-consuming work. Now imagine doing that for a mural that's been whitewashed. I'm happy that people are going to be able to see this again the way they saw it before. This time of year, many of us pause and think about all the things we're grateful for. At Colorado Public Radio, we're so grateful for all of the donors and sponsors who choose to support CPR. We wouldn't be able to do what we do or be here for you without you. Thank you for being a part of the CPR family. We are so grateful for you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. What do homeowners and renters get out of the special session that just ended? After all, in four days, state lawmakers rearranged billions of dollars in taxes and benefits. Is this chapter now closed? Let's ask CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny. Andy, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. This urgent session convened after voters rejected Proposition HH earlier this month. HH was supposed to temper property taxes, which are ballooning. That's right. And HH actually would have done a lot more than just property taxes. It also made big changes to Tabor and school funding. But regardless, it went down in flames. And then Governor Jared Polis announced that since voters hadn't passed that, we were going to have a special legislative session to take on property taxes and some other issues instead. And he actually called a press conference and did a, a bit of political theater. He literally broke open a glass case like this was the emergency backup option. Looks like a special session for property tax relief. With the voters having turned down the property tax relief package in Prop HH, uh, we need to act for short-term property relief now. Once the glass was cleaned up, what did lawmakers actually come up with? Polis actually gave Democrats a pretty broad agenda for what subjects they could take on, not just property taxes, and so they did. So the list of things they did is they cut property tax rates for homeowners, uh, nothing for commercial buildings, by the way. They also flattened Tabor refunds. That actually might be the single most impactful fiscal change. Basically, what that means is that next year, all taxpayers are going to get an identical $800 Tabor refund. Under the usual system, those refunds would have ranged from about $600 to $2,000 instead. Like Normally, they're kind of tiered up based on your income. So when you make them all equal instead, it's a net gain for lower income people and a loss for higher income people. And then they also, not done yet, expanded (laughs) the state's earned income tax credit That's for the working poor. And they set aside some money for renter relief. And they enrolled Colorado in this federal program to provide people with food benefits for kids in the summer. And that actually is all. Can we do any more sorting out of who benefits and who loses? I 
Yes, this tax package really moved things in multiple directions at once. But what I like to do is kind of look at it in the aggregate of who it affected. And when I did all the math, what I realized, Ryan, was that the group seeing the single largest gain here is actually households making under $50,000 a year. It's a fairly low income tier. Hmm. Altogether, those folks, those households are getting close to $500 million in benefits next year out of this package. That's because they're getting larger table refunds. They're getting that expanded earned income tax credit. You know, depending on their situation, folks in that income tier could be individually gaining anywhere from a couple hundred bucks to more than a thousand bucks. And that would be whether they buy or rent. So to the kind of homeowner idea, Mm -hmm. is there a reduction in property taxes? Yeah, to bring it back to property taxes, (laughs) um, there still is the reduction in property taxes. Homeowners, on the other hand, you know, they get to keep about $430 million in their collective pockets next year due to the way property tax rates are being cut. So that's actually a little bit less than the benefits that went to low-income households, but that will take off some of the edge of those higher tax bills that a lot of homeowners are facing next year. How many people lose and how many people gain? Could you say that? Yeah, uh, we can't say it exactly, but what I can say is that any household under about $104,000 in income is guaranteed to gain relatively from this package. That's more than half of taxpayers. It's actually more than 60% of taxpayers. But on the other hand, if your household making more than that $104,000, it could be a different story. When you get up into those higher income tiers, those folks could experience anything from saving maybe a couple hundred bucks all the way to losing a couple thousand bucks of table refund money. Ah, because of the refunds and Mm -hmm. that, that kind of redistribution. I'm just sure the two political parties didn't agree on whether this was the right approach. How do the Democrats, who are in the majority, describe it? Sure. So Democrats said that, yes, there's a lot going on in this package, and that's because it offers a lot of benefits to a lot of different people, which they say is good. Here's Representative Judy Amabile. What we did here for four days is balance interests. And we have homeowners We have renters, we have elderly community members, we have kids, and we had an opportunity to try to balance all of these interests. And, you know, some Democrats are also pretty proud of the fact that this policy package really prioritized, like I said, lower income families. And it kind of had this effect of making Colorado's tax system a little bit more progressive uh, just for next year. Here's Representative Javier Mabry. Our tax code is very attractive for higher income Coloradans, and um, we're just trying to help the little guy a little bit with this legislation. And Andy, what about Republicans? Oh, they don't like it. They said (laughs) that, first of all, the property taxes did not go far enough. They proposed a much bigger cut. And then overall, we heard this Republican critique that this policy package basically shifted hundreds of millions of refund dollars to lower income people and that this was basically wealth redistribution, that it was socialist. Here's Representative Brandy Bradley saying that the relief for homeowners should have really been the focus here. We've done it time and time and time again. And here we are again, providing relief for everyone but people like me. You know, Republicans also argued that voters had actually rejected some of the core ideas of the Democratic package just a couple weeks ago. Those flat Tabor refunds, the equal Tabor refunds, had been part of the failed Proposition HH measure, and yet here they were again two weeks later. 
Here's Representative Ron Weinberg. I am saddened to go back to my district and tell them that this is the legislation we have decided to pass. It is a spit in the face to this state. Now, Andy, to be clear, taxpayers don't have to vote for this. So how do you think this will go over with them, with the public? That's right. This stuff is going into effect for next year and next year only because the legislature already passed it. Voters don't have to weigh on it. But what will they think of it? You know, it's hard to say because, again, the effects are so individualized. It depends on do you own a home? What's your income level? And, you know, on the one hand, yes, like I said earlier, most taxpayers do see a net benefit. But first of all, most people won't even be aware of how this affected them. That's not their fault. Taxes are just complicated. And who really follows this stuff? Hmm. And then, you know, there's also definitely been a backlash that I've at least seen on social media to the fact that they did change Tabor refunds, to the fact that, you know, Proposition HH failed. And then two weeks later, here comes the special session to take on somewhat similar ideas. So we'll have to wait and see which of those messages sticks in people's minds. A lot of the opposition to HH was coming from local governments. Mm hmm. So what do we know about how the changes to property taxes under the special session solution, what effect will they have on schools, local government budgets? It's going to be similar to HH, where anytime you cut property taxes, it does have an effect on local governments and schools because they are the ones who collect those dollars. So what this new policy package does is, first of all, it makes up for all the kind of lost or changed dollars for schools and ensure schools don't really see any impact from this. It also ensures that emergency services like fire departments also get all their dollars replaced. All that money is going to come from the state general fund to the tune of about $200 million. Hmm. And then the state will also use some of that money to make up for some of the effects on cities and counties. That'll be mostly focused on slow-growing rural areas not so much on Colorado Springs, Denver, Fort Collins, those faster growing cities that, you know, have seen a lot of expansion of their tax base and won't be affected nearly as much by reduced tax rates. Now, Andy, you've said on several occasions that this applies to the taxes due next year. So taxes for 2023 due in 24. Oh, yeah. What happens after that? Well, uh, probably more arguing over taxes, if I had to guess. This is really only the beginning. You know, it's a one-year plan, and there are already three different groups floating their own property tax plans, long-term changes that they want to potentially put on the ballot for next year. All of those would have pretty dramatic effects. At the same time, the legislature is also convening a committee, which, you know, (laughs) means they're serious to work on their own long-term property tax plans. Yeah, I think the big debate we'll see next year is between like two really different sides. One of them is going to be arguing, get the state out of property taxes, let cities handle these questions. The other is going to be pushing, you know, from conservatives, from businesses, they're going to be pushing for a statewide cap that ensures property taxes just can't go up by more than a certain amount year to year. And I think basically we're going to spend as much time talking about taxes next year as the presidential election, or at least like I will anyway, not everybody else. (laughs) Well, Andy, I I don't know. It feels like a Band-Aid. Does it feel like a Band-Aid to you? It's like a Band-Aid that's going to disintegrate in a year. Like, everybody knows it's a Band-Aid. You know, it's like it it has an ending point inherently on it. Mm -hmm. And the state does have to decide in a big way, yeah, what does it want its property tax future to be? Because we've been through some big changes and nobody seemed to come up with an answer that sticks. 
Sticks. Get it? Band-Aid. Okay. Band-Aid. <laughs> Andy, thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny dissecting the property tax relief plan that came out of this week's special session. Governor Jared Polis has already signed it into law. And we'll be right back with reflections from a rabbi. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A year ago, Coloradans voted to allow grocery stores to sell wine. And since March, that's where many people pick up a bottle or two. Now that it's the first holiday season, liquor stores will be competing with grocery stores for wine sales. Could it make or break mom-and-pop liquor stores? Colorado Wonders takes a look. Read the story and see pictures at CPR.org. Made possible in part by the Colorado Health Foundation. We're learning more about a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas. It'll last four days and liberate captives on both sides. Since Hamas's attack October 7th, the chant, Bring Them Home, has become a familiar one. It was heard in Washington during the March for Israel this month. Well, Rabbi Emily Hyatt traveled to D.C. to take part in that. Upon her return to Denver, she delivered a Shabbat sermon about the experience. CPR has brought you a range of Colorado voices connected to the war. Today, an excerpt of the rabbi's remarks to her congregation at Temple Emanuel last Friday night, November 17th. They say march when you march on Washington. By the way, you just stand still in one place. But we marched on Washington, and it was in solidarity with Israel and also in support of releasing the hostages and support of the U.S. relationship with Israel. And I think it was a 21-hour experience, 18 hours of travel, for three hours on the ground in D.C. And it was a pretty wild experience. The helicopter that was flying back and forth overhead, I was like, what do you think they're looking for? You know, the security and all of that. And then I think they were counting. I think they do a counting thing to see how many people show up when there's these experiences where people come. And the numbers that they gave, they said there were 290,000 people that showed up in support of Israel, which is pretty powerful. Do we know that it's 290,000? A rabbi didn't count because you know that they would have said there were like 2 million. (laughs) That's how many people come to High Holidays, in case you were wondering. (laughs) Rabbi counting, rabbi numbers. Uh, But that's a lot of people, and it felt like a lot of people you know, federations and day school groups and people that are there on their own and people from other organizations that everybody's wearing their swag that says which city or organization they belong to. And there's, you know, Christians United for Israel. And then there's Boston Federation Loves Israel and all the people that are there. And they're all swimming around us in this giant, you know, section. And we're only one of all the sections. Uh, And we listen to a lot of people talk, people that I agree with a lot of the time people that I don't agree with most of the time. And people said some really powerful things. And not just in support of Israel, in support of the Jewish community. And in support of the Jewish community's right to live without fear or persecution. And so I'm thinking about the fact that there were about 300,000 people that were there. And I saw this thing that was on the internet that was saying, 
How cool is this? There were approximately 300,000 people that came to the march in D.C. There were 300,000 reserve soldiers that were called up in Israel, approximately, I think it's like 360,000 now, whatever. 600,000 is a powerful number. You know what 600,000 is? The number of people who stood at Sinai. Cool. What does it mean? I don't know, but it's cool. But then I saw a friend of mine, Rabbanit Leah Sarna, who said, actually, let me help you remember the text that you're talking about. She said, if you go back to the book of Exodus, when it talks about the people who are about to stand at Sinai, it says that the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, one place to another, about 600,000 men on foot. And then it says in the text, not including those who are under 20. The reason that they do that is because they're measuring the number of like military capable people, right? For them, what they want to know is that there were 600,000 people who are old enough to fight. But what she is pointing out is that it says that there were 600,000, but really what that means is that there were about 3 million, say the rabbis, who we know can't count. Three million is a lot more than 600,000. And it occurs to me that that's exactly true for Tuesday also. That, I don't know, somewhere between 290, 300,000 people stood in Washington and they represented so many more. I looked at our latest membership report that we give to the Board of Trustees. You know, we have 5,372 individual members of Temple. And I took all of you with me to DC, and then I stood on the mall with all of you. And if that's true for me, how wildly true is that for all of us that were standing there? What communities did we represent that we went on behalf of? Because really, 21 hours is an impractical use of, like, not, not a really efficient travel day. And so not all of us can get up and go, but all of us got up and went. And so I took with me 6,000 of you, and I had also a very, heavy carry-on full of snacks and batteries and cell phone things and extra socks and all the good stuff that you take when you go on a trip, if you're well-prepared. And here's what I brought back with me, is some sense of the following truths. Number one is you were absolutely there with me. Number two, we're not alone. We're not alone, even though I know we feel lonely right now. Number three, the Jewish community can, for the most part, put aside a lot of the really big differences that we have and that we do need to figure out and work through, but we can put them aside to find these very rare moments of unity. I didn't know if we could. I don't always know if we should, but we did. And that was a pretty powerful thing 
Number four, what's happening right now is not okay. This is not okay. I think that's why 300,000 people showed up. I think it made it feel clearer to me than it had before how not okay this is. Sometimes you feel like you're imagining it. And I have felt like that about the state of anti-Semitism in the world. I have felt like that about the war in Israel with Hamas. It's so not okay. I came back with the understanding that we are fighting perhaps more than one war. And they're a little tangled, and they're a little hard to tell apart, but we have the war in Israel with Hamas, and we have the fight that we are picking up here in Denver, in Colorado, in the U.S., in North America, in the rest of the world against anti-Semitism. And just because I think the moment of honesty matters and it's my job to tell you, I'm a little scared. And once we have acknowledged the fact that this is big and it's maybe not okay, then we have the opportunity to take a second. Each one of us represents more than just ourselves. I brought all of you with me to D.C. I also brought all of the people who came before me, all of the people who have lived this before. There's a guy named Theodore Reich. He's a Jewish psychoanalyst that was a student of Freud, and he says that we sometimes misstate something. We often say that history repeats itself. And he says, that's not quite correct. It merely rhymes. Because in every generation, we're different. We have different information, we have different resources, we have different understanding of human capacity. We have every generation that came before us that we get to learn from. And we have different people around us that we have relationships with and friendships with and alliances with and that we can rely on. I know many of you feel alone. I, somebody said to me recently, I feel like it's an out-of-body experience to be listening to the news that I'm listening to because we feel like we are separated from parts of society that we are used to that now feel perhaps far away from us. I know we feel alone, but you're not. You're just not. A Shabbat sermon from Rabbi Emily Hyatt of Temple Emmanuel in Denver. She attended the March for Israel in Washington this month. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
Every November, thousands of Denverites in need receive a Thanksgiving meal because of the big-hearted owner of a barbecue joint. Daddy Bruce Randolph said his grandmother gave him his barbecue recipe and his philanthropic spirit. And so it was that in 1967, with a truck full of food and a portable grill, he fed a few hundred hungry people in City Park, then did it again every year until it became one of the largest free Thanksgiving celebrations in the country. It'll be a whole bunch of them dying in the market. So many out there in the street, you can't hardly walk. By the 1980s, Daddy Bruce filled the bellies of 30 to 40,000 people each year. He also fed the Denver Broncos at their practice sessions, meals they liked so much they took them on the road with them. Bruce Randolph died in 1994, but his memory lives on with a street and a school named for him, and his Thanksgiving meal tradition continues. A Colorado postcard from CPR, supported by National Jewish Health. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Painting a mural for the first time was a powerful experience, says artist David Ocelot Garcia. But a few years ago, that mural, Huitzila Pochle, the hummingbird warrior, was painted over without permission. David set out to restore it, but the process was uncertain. No one in Colorado had attempted to do what he was going to do. The whole thing helped him discover the beauty not just in making art, but in reviving it. We'll share his journey now thanks to Off the Walls, the new podcast from CPR and Denverite about street art. Emily Williams and Kibwe Cooper are the hosts. I got to do this fire. I have to figure out mainly this color and this color. David Osolo Garcia is trying to mix just the right shade of yellow for part of his mural. Yellows are actually very tricky colors. They might be similar, but they might not. I gotta see. Let me test it. Wow. I think that'll work. Look at that. David isn't painting a new mural. He's bringing the first mural he ever painted back to life. It's really bizarre. That's not very, like, common, you know? It's like, you're always gonna evolve generally speaking, with your paintings, you know, but you're never going to want to, like, go back to the beginning and say, I want to paint like this again. And it's just kind of surreal that way. But that's what I'm having to do, which is challenging. (laughs) David isn't afraid of a creative challenge. He was raised with the mindset that you don't give up. This mural is something he hasn't given up on, even when it seemed like it was lost. In our last episode, we learned about how the community mural movement in Denver got started and why Chicano murals in Denver are considered endangered historic places. The concerns about losing these murals aren't in the past. And there's maybe no one in Denver who knows that better than David Osolo Garcia. He's the first artist we know of in Colorado who's had a mural painted over and actually set out to bring it back. That's different from just putting up something new. It's, it's hopeful to see something that has been covered up now be back. On a pretty busy street in Denver's Sun Valley neighborhood, David was hard at work doing the restoration. Storm clouds threatened rain, 
but David was in his element. His hair was tucked back in a bandana, and the bottom of his gray t-shirt was covered in all different colors, from wiping off the ends of his paintbrushes. Hello. How are you? Good. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for making it out. Yeah, how are things going? Good. We're getting real close now. Yeah, about how much do you have left? Uh, maybe a few hours. Wow. Yeah, a few hours. And then, I don't know, depending on the weather, I started to do the clear coat. I've done, you know, over 25 murals across the country at this point. But people always talk about this one in a real, like, different way, you know. And I don't know. It, again, it was my very first one. I didn't know what I was doing, actually. I didn't. I just was on pure instinct and intuition, like I wasn't a painter of any sorts necessarily. I just thought I could do something like this, you know, and so I just did it. <laughs> I just did it. I just did it. And uh, But it's been amazing journey. It really, it started, you know, it was like the, what started me on my journey as a public artist was this mural. In his studio, which is filled with paintings, drawings, sculptures, I noticed something. A small photo hanging on the wall. Who is that? That's actually my mother. I actually just put that up not that long ago because I, ha- I found it here. And I know I just like having her in the studio, I guess. Uh, she, she's no longer. Uh, she's passed on, you know. But uh, I like... Uh, I'm fascinated by facial structure and features and things and I know I look a lot like my mother but so it's like this exploration of your what you you look like like your own face. David's mother was a big influence on him. He was the youngest of nine children and had an especially close bond with her. I grew up in uh, East Denver area called Park Hill so I was actually born there my parents moved here from Mexico, uh, I think in like 76. You know, we, we were a very traditional Mexican family. My mother, she was like always cooking, you know. And so my house was always in movement, always could smell the foods, you know. You know, waking up and you could smell tamales. I had this real co- close connection with my mom, you know. She suffered from uh, rheumatoid arthritis ever since I was born. I would try to take care of her as much as I could. I was her personal helper, you know, I was the youngest kid. She was just an amazing person, you know, and uh, strong. And she, it, what was fascinating, because she was really tiny, actually. She was only like four foot something. I mean, she was tiny, but her strength and her wisdom was powerful, man. And so my mom, instilled that in me, you know, um, that energy that she had. David got his resilience from his mother, and his father helped inspire his love for art and his curiosity about culture. One of the significant things was my father, how much of an artist he was. You know, I, I consider him a folk artist now, but he was always very creative, and like, even though he worked in construction, he was always making things, I remember. A lot of things he made was very, almost like primitive, tribal-looking things. 
I think he 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 was always fascinated by that, and he always had um, National Geographic books. I used to love looking through those books because I was just fascinated by like the world that we live in. I remember specifically the books. They were called uh, codices, Mexican codices. So, so these are just archaeological codices that they found basically and had all these little characters there's like things that look like creatures and then people dressed up in different things and masks and I started drawing a lot of those characters on my own and then interestingly something else happened while I was doing that it was more like unconscious where I just started scribbling a lot and creating my own like designs in the scribbles it was just like it was like lighting a fire, I think, on the field, you know, it just took off like fast. And I was just obsessed with it, drawing and art and things. Drawing those designs made David realize he wanted to be an artist. He was into all kinds of art, but he really found a love for sculpture. And years later, as an adult, he was working at a sculpting studio in Sun Valley when he saw some new neighbors were moving into the building next door. They were going to open a community center. It was very much embracing the, the Latino community, you know, the Chicano community, things like that. And so being that that's my heritage, you know, I'm Mexican, it, it, it was really like a good formula. And what, what, what happened was is that they offered, you know, because they were new, they're like, would you, would you consider doing a mural on our building, you know, that highlights our community center that talks about what we do here? And I was like, sure, you know, just going with the flow. <laughs> but he was a sculptor. He had no idea how to make a mural. But the idea of making one excited him. And there was so much creative freedom. When we created the mural, it was like we have this blank slate. David says Adriana Lujan is the magic maker for Sisters of Color. That's who was opening the community center next door. When I met her, Adriana was wearing pretty blue beaded earrings and a shirt with a word in Spanish that roughly translates to badass in English. There's this wall in this industrial part of Denver because back in the day, you know, that part of Federal and like 8th Avenue was just all warehouses and, you know, the school buses, but it wasn't like a very community friendly space. We were pretty much trying to create a beautiful, safe space amidst the industry and, you know, smog of Denver. <laughs> we definitely wanted the the mural to be representative of culture because our organization is a cultural arts and wellness organization. And also because we talk about the historical and the indigenous practices of people from the Americas, um, from all of the Americas, you know, duality, maternalness, all of those things are representative of our communities. So he was given some ideas, some light frameworks. We had a couple community meetings. He did some sketches and we were just like, let's buy paint and make this happen. So with those ideas from the community swirling in his head, culture, duality, family, David got to work. He dug into his Mexican-American heritage, to the characters from the codices that had inspired him as a kid, and to his own family. He designed a mural full of color and symbolism. To David, art is energy. And he believes the symbols he uses are powerful. 
And as he was setting up to paint the mural on the blank wall, a strange thing happened. Right before I started painting, it was just a perfectly sunny day and I had one of my big ladders against the wall and I was just getting ready to start drawing, I think. And out of nowhere is this gust of air, just one, not, it wasn't a windy day. This gust of air came and grabbed the ladder and threw it across the parking lot. I think it landed on my truck or something. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, where did this come from? It wasn't because it was windy out, you know. I think it was something saying, you know, just making me acknowledge that this is very powerful, you know, like what you're gonna do, what you're gonna do here is very powerful. And like, just so that I'm aware of what I'm using, the symbols and all that, they can be very powerful. Did that scare you at all? No, I never got scared, no. Mm -mm. He started painting. He painted by instinct and a mural emerged bursting with color, energy, and symbolism. The mural's called Huitzilopochtli, the hummingbird warrior. In David's mural, Huitzilopochtli is a baby. He's in the center of the mural, but he doesn't feel like the main character of the piece. Instead, your eye is drawn toward the person holding him, his mother. In, in the stories, it says that Huitzilopochtli was born from Coatlicue. And so in the story, you'll see the female figure, Coatlicue, holding a baby, which is Huitzilopochtli. And that's honoring that direction, that tradition in the story. It's like one day, this baby will be someone big. Huitzilopochtli means hummingbird warrior. But he couldn't be the hummingbird warrior without his mother. David modeled Quadlique after someone he knows very, very well. The four-foot-nothing person with big strength and wisdom. His own mother. I just always wanted to honor her and I was like, because I, I knew I was doing something that might be important. I was like, if, if I ever have the opportunity, I'm going to start there. felt real compelled and proud to be able to do that and like showing my obsession and love for her. <laughs> That's what it was about. Shortly after the mural was finished, his mom passed over. And so that mural just became really, you know, if you look at her feet, she's she's walking in in the light and in the dark. She's working in in, in life and death. You know, it was a beautiful thing. And that was so much about what we do as people of color in this community is we're always walking in two worlds. It was exactly what the community needed at the time that it was being put up. David is glad his mother's inspiration resonates with the community. One of the things my mother taught me, you know, and she, she used to always say, I'm not going to let it beat me when things go out real rough and hard. So she instilled that in me, and so I, always, I still use that. You know, I was like, if something gets difficult, I, I just tell myself, I'm not going to let this beat me. David finished the Huitzilopochtli mural in 2007. It was such a soul-filling experience for him that murals became a big part of his career. Since that first one, he's painted about 25. But murals don't sit in a gallery or a museum. They're in the real world. 
and so are people with access to plain white paint and roller. About a decade after David painted the Huitzilopochtli mural, Adrina and the Sisters of Color were faced with a difficult decision. This was kind of when, like, there was a lot of changes and shifts going on. And, you know, we served underserved and underinsured community folks. So as there is this gigantic economic boom going on in Denver, a lot of the communities that we served really didn't have access to any of any of the the wealth building potential of those of those times. Um, so we really had to choose, do we, you know, do we shut our doors or do we figure out another way to work? And so we left the space. The center moved to another location and rented out the Sun Valley building, which they owned, to a marijuana dispensary business. Even though the organization had moved, Adrina said they'd made it very clear that the art on the building wasn't to be messed with. We had had explicit, you know, instructions not to touch any of the artwork. When Adriana's organization rented out the building, the lease stated that the mural is part of the building and should not be removed. I think that that was a really important, you know, part was that, you know, we we had actually known from the very beginning that no matter what, our art was going to stay intact. But one day in the spring of 2020, David's and Adrina's phones were both flooded with calls and messages. So someone called me right away and they said, someone just painted over your mural. I think I got another two calls, like a little bit after that, you know, because people are watching it. I'm like, oh my God. And so I was a little shocked and surprised. My only response was like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to repaint it. Don't worry about it. I'll repaint it. (laughs) You know, I'm going to repaint it and it'll be back. David immediately went to that mantra from his mother, I'm not going to let it beat me. He was sure he would bring the mural back. But this mural wasn't just his. A lot of people were affected when that wall was covered up in white paint without any warning or permission. Yes, it's David's mural, but it was also a community mural. You know, the ability for us to create safe space was kind of like very violated. Everybody was already starting to feel numb from everything that was going on socially and politically. We had been going through all of the, you know, the protests during BLM, and there was so much that was going on. And this was like, one of the last straws for me personally. There was already so much going on with sadness in the world. And it was like, oh, this is just another example of, you know, predatory development, another example of people not respecting the culture of Denver and the art that has been created and manifested in in Denver. And like so many other kind of like broken treaties, you know, it was like, okay, this was dishonored. And now how are we going to fix this and remediate this? Meanwhile, David was trying to figure out how exactly to bring the mural back. At first, he thought he would just repaint it. But then Lucha Martinez de Luna proposed an idea. Lucha the activist and archaeologist and daughter of Emmanuel Martinez, who we met in our first episode, had learned from an organization in L.A. that there was maybe another option. We have all of the tools to bring it back like how it originally was. So we take advantage of that. 
Instead of repainting the mural, they would remove the white paint, revealing David's original mural underneath. Several chemicals that you combine in different amounts that you apply to the wall as almost like a gel with the brush. And the technique is you have to have the right amount of chemicals mix and leave it on a right amount of time. And then what you do is you power wash it off. So what it does is that this chemical lifts the primer or whatever you don't want and leaves the art underneath from doing that. That's very complicated to do. We tested it a few times and it was a little, it made me real nervous. And I was like, man. Finally, it was just one of those things where like, I'm gonna try this, this mix, this time, this technique. And so I tried one last try, put the chemical on there and let it sit for a second, power wash it off. And it came off like, like magic. Like, like we just wiped it off like nothing. And I was like, this is it. I think we got it. And I was like, yes, <laughs> it actually is working. And it just, I got really excited because I was like, can't believe we're cleaning this, you know, and it, you know, being the, you know, this has never happened before in Colorado, you know. David finished that first part of the restoration, removing all the white paint to reveal his mural underneath last year in 2022. That meant he had two things left to do. Restore the mural's color by painting back over any parts that were damaged and sealing it all with a protective coat. In the last couple of hours of this long restoration process, as David was almost finished painting over the few remaining parts of the mural, he felt transported back in time. Kind of sad in a way, too, because it's been like this, like... Uh, journey back into my past and and so if you start remembering your life or something you know things that happened it's like uh, you kind of bring that back with you you know it's like memories really so it's kind of interesting that that's the case and so I'm happy that people are going to be able to see this again the way they saw it before and 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 just be happy that I got it done, you know. That's what's happening here, is we're fixing it. We're getting it done. So what I'll do is I'll put a blue in there. Cause that blue is nice. All I have to do is work on that outline. That outline. Can you believe how close I am now? So close. It's crazy. As he painted, storm clouds were gathering overhead. I was like in complete like crazy paint mode, thick touch up, touch up, touch up. And now this is like, I have to relax now, you know? Breathe and let the brush do the talking. <laughs> A little bit of raindrops, and it's still, it's, it's okay. But you're, you're so close too. Oh my God. Oh, I just got one right in my eyeball. Go, little brush, go. <laughs> and then, just as he was putting a few of the last brush strokes on the wall, the rain switched from a trickle to a downpour. He snatched up his paint and brushes 
and we ran to take shelter inside the sculpture studio that's still next door. That was pretty good timing, though. Was real good. I mean, I'm like maybe a few minutes from being fully done, but I feel like I kept my promise. <laughs> you know. I could never assume why somebody would feel okay painting over someone else's art and creation. But I also understand that people are very disconnected from their spiritual selves and are disembodied from feeling like they're part of the whole or part of a community. And so, you know, I think for me personally, that kind of set off a series of events that really reminded me of like challenges can be can be a beautiful thing if you can get through them and so i think for me and for everybody that got to see that be restored or got to see some type of justice i think that was important because people needed a win in community but we also need the beauty it's amazing that a mural could be reborn you don't think you hear that a lot it could be repainted. It could be unveiling and you know amazing, you know, purpose and beautiful art. But a rebirth—that's a different thing, and that's what this is doing. You know, that's exciting to me. I mean, if I mean, I'm thinking more like philosophical here. But if that was the only thing I've ever made and it got to make, I'm happy. Off the Walls is a new podcast from CPR and Denverite about the city's murals and the stories they tell. The hosts are Emily Williams and Kibway Cooper. Find it everywhere you get podcasts. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.